Matthew chapter 16. As we hit Matthew chapter 16, we're really at a pivoting point in Jesus' ministry. It's a crucial time. As He's just pointed out to the disciples in the passage that we looked in last week, He's recognized that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders of the nation of Israel are not open to the message of Jesus Christ and to welcome Him as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. They've become more and more hostile. At the beginning they were skeptical. Now they've become hostile. And they're opposing Him. And they're, from this point on, they're really trying to get rid of Him. Now Jesus, at the end of the passage that we looked at last week, pointed out to His disciples that they need to beware of the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. Jesus is going to bring His disciples to a point of decision. He's going to reveal some new truths to them. Now as we look at Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Years ago, I used to do some work for an individual. And I remember the first time that I met this individual. He's kind of an eccentric guy and kind of a character and ended up being a friend. He was an energetic guy and and he was uh, uh, just a workaholic. And he worked like 80 hours a week. Just worked like a dog all the time. And But he was, he was funny because when I, when I first met him, I was working with him in the basement of one of his buildings. And it was just old pipes that he wanted to get rid of down there and stuff. And he wanted to build some walls to section off crawl spaces. And, just, and, we're, and he's right down in there working away with me. And he was uh, through all of his uh, hard work and effort. And I don't know if it involved an inheritance or, or not as well also. But he was a, he was a millionaire. And we're down there working. I've just met him for the first time that day, and we're working along. And, and at one point, he looks at me and he says, so what do you think of me, given the fact that I'm a millionaire? And it kind of caught me off guard. I thought, well, I haven't really thought anything of you yet. It, it, kind, of, it kind of took me back a little bit. I said, I guess it depends. Some are millionaires just because it gets handed to them, and others work for it. I said, some people that are millionaires are really nice people, and some are jerks. Some are responsible and some are irresponsible. I guess I just wouldn't make an opinion on somebody based on that one fact. And so I guess I just really didn't have an opinion. The thing that stood out to me the most is I thought, what is it about this guy that he thinks I should have an opinion of him or that other people should have an opinion of him? Because to be honest with you, if I was to come up and ask you, who do people say that I am, I would expect you to say, what? I don't expect people to be thinking about me. There's nothing really uh, outstanding or outlandish about me that 
would cause people to think about me. In fact, one of the things that I've always thought was a pretty good thing to go by was years ago, somebody made the statement that you wouldn't worry so much about what other people think about you if you realized how seldom they do. they got better things to do with their time, better things to think about than me, so I don't really go through life thinking that people are forming all these great opinions, or terrible opinions even, about me. But this individual was thinking that there was something about him that was special enough, I guess, that everybody should be forming opinions about who he is. It it has eluded me. When we come into this passage, we see that about Jesus. There's a murmur through the towns and the villages about Christ. Who is this person? And some people like the Pharisees are saying he can't be the Messiah. He's not from God. He's not the Son of God. And other people are saying, how can he do the things that he's doing? He's raised the dead. He's cured lepers. He's walked on water. He's fed 5,000 people with one boy's lunch. When the Messiah comes, will he do more than this? Doesn't this guy have to be the guy? And so there is a buzz going around the nation of Israel about who is this person. And in this passage, Jesus is going to begin to instruct the disciples and to talk about building his church. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The statement that Jesus made, I will build my church. But even coming into that, we see a validation of the truth of the ministry and the message of Jesus Christ. In other words, the point that I'm making is that it is shown from the content of it itself and from the happenings around it that is absolutely true. Well, you remember in the last couple of weeks I've, I've mentioned repeatedly that when we get to this point in the Gospel of Matthew that he's, he's recorded so many miracles in so many different places with so many people seeing it, huge crowds of people seeing it, that it is impossible for it to not be true. Because it would have been too easy to disprove otherwise. And it would have never gotten any traction. Well, when I look at this passage and this question that Jesus brings up before his disciples, I find the same thing. I find the same kind of evidence, the same validation that, that he has to be who he says he is. And these miracles and things that are recorded for us have to be true. There's three different ways that the ministry of Christ is validated through this experience. First of all, it is validated in the question itself. Jesus comes to His disciples and He says, Who do men, the general populace, who do people say that I am? And when you think about it, if it's anybody other than Jesus asking this question, that is just a weird question. Because the only way that that question makes sense is if it's asked by somebody who's been doing amazing things, somebody who's been doing something that stands out. And so, like I said earlier, if I came up to you and say, who do people say that I am? That would just be a weird question. It would catch you totally off guard. But, if Jesus has been walking on water, calming storms, casting out demons, raising the dead, healing the sick, causing the blind to see and the lame to walk, now that's a completely logical question. Because all those things are signs. They all point to something. They point to who He is. So, if Jesus has been doing all these wonders out in the multitudes of people, then this question makes sense. If Jesus has not been doing all those signs and wonders out in the crowds of people, this question is absurd. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so we see the truth of Jesus Christ validated, first of all, in the question. In fact, all throughout history, from the time of Christ up through now, everybody takes notice of Jesus Christ. I highlighted a few of them for us here just this morning. And these aren't all people that are believers. In fact, of the list that I picked from, very few are believers. But even people like Gandhi. Gandhi pointed out Christ. He was intrigued by Christ. He says, A man who was completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. 
he said about Jesus. Napoleon says, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But what foundation did we rest the creations of our genius upon force? Jesus Christ founded an empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. So he caught the attention of Napoleon, Albert Einstein. I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. He further added, no man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and other heroes of his type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. So Einstein was captivated by Jesus. Charles Dickens I commit my soul to the mercy of God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I now most solemnly impress upon you the truth and beauty of the Christian religion as it came from Christ Himself and the impossibility of going far wrong if you humbly and heartily respect it. Dostoevsky said, Even those who have renounced Christianity and attack it in their inmost being still follow the Christian ideal. I love that statement. I've said on occasion, if the atheists are right... Why do they promote the Christian value? Even the atheists will teach their children to be kind on the playground at school. If Darwinism is correct, it's survival of the fittest. Push that kid off the swing and take over. But nobody lives by that because we know it's wrong inside. And that's what Dostoevsky's saying. And remember, he's from Russia, built on atheism. And so surrounded by atheists, he said in the middle of the atheists, we still validate Christianity because we still live by its principles. Because inside you just know it to be right. For hitherto, neither their subtlety nor their ardor of their hearts has been able to create a higher ideal of man than a, and a virtue than the ideal given by Christ of old. H.G. Wells said, I'm a historian and not, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure of all history. And when you think about it, even if you look at the calendar, he's proven to be true. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anandamani, which means in the year of our Lord. It is in the year of our Lord, 2017. We measure it on Christ's life. And lastly, Philip Schaff said, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator and poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. What person of history is more written about, painted, sung about, whether you look in arts, science, uh, history, writing. There's such a huge volume dedicated to Christ. It's phenomenal. Even our calendar, based on His life. How could you have that kind of an impact on this world and not have been true, not have been real? Even the existence of the church, which at this point was not even started. He's just going to begin to get started. But you look at the church and it is spread all over the world, embracing Christ and started in the very place where all of His miracles happened which would be the hardest place to start a church if they didn't happen. So we see the validation of Christ's ministry just in the question. If he hasn't been accomplishing all these amazing tasks 
then nobody would take note of him. Nobody would have an opinion formed about him. But because he has accomplished all these amazing feats in the midst of huge crowds of people, then everybody is forming an opinion of him. Well, secondly, not only in the question do we see the validation of Christ in his ministry, but in the answer. By the answers of the populace, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? They responded and they said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're Elijah. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Christ. Elijah is who they were expecting to come before Christ comes. And then Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And there's a, a story in the Maccabees that uh, talks about Jeremiah removing some articles of the temple, the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the, the brazen altar, I believe it was. And they expect Jeremiah to bring those things back to the temple before the return of Christ. So all these people were kind of, the three mentioned by name anyway, were kind of forerunners to Christ in the Jewish mindset. But then they just said, or one of the prophets. So of a host of other prophets, you can pick one of those. Just as the question was strange if Jesus was not who he was, the answer is also very strange if Jesus is not who he said he was. What do all these people have in common? They have two things in common. One is a godly character. All these people were known to be godly, righteous people that were servants of God. Which would indicate that since these people are saying, well, we see Jesus to be one of these guys, then... It would indicate that Jesus was somebody of righteous, godly character, uprightness. But there's one other thing that these people have in common. Do you know what it is? They're all dead. Every one of them. Jesus says, who do people out there think that I am? And they listed a bunch of dead people from the past. What's the point? I'll guarantee you, if you go up to somebody you know and say, who do you think I am? They're going to give you your name. They might say the son of and list your parents or the daughter of. They might say the husband or wife of or the mom of. Or the dad of. They might label some family connection. But they're not going to give you a list of dead people that they think that you are. But that's exactly what happens with Jesus. Is because all the crowds, all the people that are around Jesus at that time are acknowledging something supernatural is taking place here. This is something that's different. This is something that is amazing. Otherwise, you would never think to list these dead people. I think, you're, I think you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Never would have crossed their mind. But Jesus is doing all these supernatural works. We, don't have, we can't raise the dead. We can't cast out demons. We don't have those things. We don't have that power, that ability, that supernatural ability. But Jesus has the supernatural ability. They see the supernatural happening in and around Him. And so they have to come up with a supernatural answer. When they're responding to who is Jesus, they have to come up with a reason why He can do the supernatural. The Pharisees and Sadducees said, I think He can do the supernatural because He's possessed. I think, he's, I think it's by the power of Satan that He's doing these things. But even them, even His enemies, recognized they had to account for the supernatural things that they see Him doing. And the general populace wasn't ready to go count Him out as a demon. Because does a demon really get where you're going by healing people and doing good things for people? I mean, they possess people and they do negative things in people's life. So they weren't ready to go to the demon answer, but they said, boy, something supernatural is happening there. So it must be somebody that, alive again from the dead that's doing this. So they recognize that supernatural aspect of Christ. The last way that we see Christ's ministry validated is through the answer of Peter. Because Peter nails it. Everybody else gave answers that were lofty. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. These are guys, these are top shelf servants of God, but they're not the Son of God. Peter nails it. He says, you are the Christ, which is like the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah. So he's the one that provides atonement for our sins. He's the Messiah. He says, you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus turns to Peter and He says, You're Peter. And upon this rock, I will build My church. Well, that's what we're going to start to go into now. As we look at the passage, we see that there are two new revelations that Jesus is going to give to the apostles. The first new revelation that He's going to give is the, is the idea of this church. It's the first place you see the word church used in the New Testament. It's a Greek word, ekklesia. And what an ekklesia was, was an assembly of people. Whether you look through the Old Testament or the New Testament... God is always assembling His people. He's always calling His people to gather and to worship. Well, in fact, it was a political term. A lot of times in the Greek culture, what they'd do is they'd have a kerux, which is a herald. And a herald would go around and call people out of their homes, out to the city square or the city gate where they'd conduct business. So he'd go through town telling everybody, come on out. And then everybody would come and gather in the city square. And when they gathered in the city square to conduct their business, whatever it is they had to deal with, they were an ecclesia. They were an assembly of the people gathered together for that purpose. It was a very secular word. Jesus uses that word and says, I'm going to have my own assembly through which I carry out my business. And he tells us a few different things about the church. The first one is the foundation of the church that he goes over. He says to Peter, you are Peter, and Peter's name, Greek language, Petros. It's a, it's a word that means rock or stone. It's in the masculine sense. But then Jesus says, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. The second use of the word rock is in the feminine form. And in the feminine form, it carries a little bit different weight. Jesus is making kind of a play on words here. And so Jesus says, you are Peter, uh, a rock, like a detached rock, a detached stone, a boulder even. But he says, upon this rock, Petra, Petra means more like a, a, a rocky cliff. It can even be a ledge of a cliff or the peak of a mountain. It's stone, but it's not detached. It's, it's rock, but it's part of the mountain. And so Jesus says to Peter, because of Peter's profession, he first of all acknowledges that that didn't come from Peter himself. He says, you know what? Nobody can come to this conclusion except the Father. My Father has revealed it to you. Jesus makes that point many times through the Gospels. You cannot come to the Father unless you're led by the Father. He draws you to Himself. It's not in us, in our own ability. But as we look at this, what is the foundation of the church? It's not Peter. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to diminish his role. He was the one that was courageous and stepped forward. He is the spokesman of the group. And we see that in the word that Christ used to ask His disciples, who do you, that word is plural, say that I am? Peter answers it, but kind of is answering it on behalf of the group. So Jesus says, you are Peter... Small rock. And upon this rock, large rock, I will build my church. Well, what is that talking about? Some people think that it's the revelation from God to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Maybe that's the rock. Peter, in pronouncing it, he's a small part of that rock, but the revelation itself is much bigger than Peter. It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that Jesus is our Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's the rock that the church will be built on. That truth. Other people think that it's the Word of God that the apostles would share throughout the world is the rock upon which Jesus would build His church. I think though all of these things are very closely related. We mentioned it cannot be Peter, and that evidence is shown later. Peter, I don't think, even sees himself as being singled out as the head of the group of apostles at this point. Even though he will have a prominent place if you look through church history, he often steps to the front and is in leadership role, but he also is rebuked later by the Apostle Paul. 
in Acts chapter 11, after he shared the gospel and opened the gate of, of the kingdom of heaven to the Gentiles through Cornelius, he is called into account before the church because they're not sure about what he did, so he's held accountable before the church. Now, even in our close context, if you continue reading the book of Matthew, you're going to find a dispute among the apostles where the apostles are on their way somewhere and they're going to get in an argument with one another, trying to decide who's, who's the greatest in the kingdom. Is it you? Is it me? Is it... And they're, they're disputing. And there's other occasions where James and John are going to come with their mom and their mom's going to ask, can one of my sons sit on your right hand and the other one on your left? Well, if everybody was pretty clear that Jesus was singling out Peter as the, what he was going to build his church on, then there would be no point in asking that question. Jesus already made it very clear that Peter's who they're building the church on. But that's what I'm saying is Jesus wasn't building it on Peter or John or any one of them. He's building it on the larger rock, which I would say is the whole group of apostles. And this is consistent with other scripture that we read as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking to Gentile believers who have been brought to Christ and are part of the church. He says, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I know the word church is not used in this passage, but if you continue to follow it, the reasoning, when he gets to chapter 3 in verse 10, he says that this is a mystery that has been hidden from ages past. This is a mystery. The Gentiles would also be part of the church. They would also come in and be part of God's people. And so of all peoples, not just the Jewish peoples, but of all peoples, you would have this kingdom of God. And then he gets, when he gets to chapter 3, verse 10, he says, This mystery is revealed in the church. That is where we see it. Because of passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, some people have said, Well, the rock that Jesus is building his church on has got to be Jesus himself. It's the hardest one uh, to force into the statement that Jesus made, because in the statement, as he's given the picture, he's not the foundation, he's the builder. He's the one building his church, he's the one laying the foundation, and the foundation is the apostles and prophets. But when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-11, it says, According to the grace of God giving to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is getting a little confusing. One passage says the foundation is the apostles and prophets, with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Another says that the foundation is Christ. The answer is in the context. In the context, what Paul's talking about in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians is his ministry. As he goes and preaches the gospel to these different places and is starting churches and building up churches, what is the foundation of his message and his ministry is Christ. That is the gospel upon which the whole ministry is built. But when we look at Ephesians, the context is the church of which the ministry of Paul is part of the foundation. So Jesus is the foundation of Paul's message, and as Paul spreads his message, his ministry is part of the foundation of the church. So when we look at what is the church, what is the rock that Christ would build his church on? The rock is the apostles, and we need to go a little bit farther here. How are they the foundation of the church? They're the foundation of the church through their ministry of taking the gospel around from village to village and city to city and to individuals and preaching the gospel. So you see, if you get in an argument about what is the rock, 
Is it the apostles? Is it the Word of God? Yes. It's all, it's all of it together. The apostles are who's preaching the Word of God. I think the rock, in the bigger sense, Peter is singled out as part of the rock. The rock, in the larger sense, is a group of apostles and the message that they will bring to the world that God is revealing through them. Not only do we see the foundation of the church, but we see the protection of the church. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, the gates are looked at as the, the, the stronghold, the place of authority. The city gate was often where people would make business decisions and, and the elders of the city would make their decisions about the city. When your army goes out to march, it goes out that gate. So it's a place that all your force comes out of. Jesus says you can unleash everything out of hell itself. The gates of hell could be thrown open and come against the church and it will not be brought to nothing. It was interesting. This last week I read a, a quote out of a letter from Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger was somebody who was in charge of persecuting and prosecuting Christians in the early church. In his letter, one of the things that he says is, this thing is pervasive. It's like an infectious disease spread throughout the empire. He says it's not just in the big cities, it's in the small towns, it's not just older people, it's younger people, it's those people of all age groups, and it's people all over the place. He said, but I think we can get a handle on it. I think we can get it stamped out. I think how wrong you were. And today Christianity is all over the face of the world. Jesus says, I'll protect my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Not only do we see the protection of his church, we also see the authority of his church. He tells the apostles that they are given the keys to the kingdom. He says, whatever you bind, in other words, you use the key to lock it up, is bound. And whatever you loose... Use the key to unlock it is loose. And so he gives the apostles authority on earth. There's a little bit of dispute whether what they bind shall have already been bound in heaven and what they loose shall have already been bound or loosed on in heaven. And so it's whether earth is following heaven or heaven is following earth. Well, I think it's that earth is following heaven, no matter how, which way you take those words. But God is involving his people in the binding and loosing. And we see that throughout Scripture. We see God open up through the apostles to the Gentiles and different people. We see Peter's ministry at Pentecost, again in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius is reached out to and the Gentiles begin to get saved. We see them unlocking the kingdom for, for, for Gentile people. We also see them exercising discipline or commanding discipline to be exercised. John 20, 23 it says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So part of their locking and unlocking is through proclaiming the gospel. Part of their locking and unlocking is through exercising church discipline. Matthew chapter 18 also refers to it. tells them that if there's an offense against somebody, they should first try to handle it personally, then with witnesses. Last of all, bring them to the church. And he says, if they refuse to hear the church, then they need to be cast out of the church. So if somebody is cast out of the church because of their sinfulness, either in belief or behavior, then it says that the church has exercised the authority. Whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Lastly, this is the first time that he begins to clearly reveal to them the gospel. He says from now on, it's going to get worse. The disciples had been looking forward to this kingdom coming. They were expecting the kingdom. Instead, they're getting the church. They were expecting thrones. Instead, they're going to get crosses. And we're going to get into that next week. But as we look at it here, we see Jesus begins to reveal to them the gospel. The Son of Man is going to go back into Jerusalem and he's going to be betrayed, handed over by the chief priests. They're going to put him to death. 
and then three days later, he will rise again. He's going to bring this message to the disciples several times in recorded for us in the book of Matthew. And usually where they end up in their conversation is, it's just not even on their radar. They, they just can't even come to terms. They've been so looking forward to Christ and His kingdom that now that He's here, they can't even imagine Christ in the cross. It just doesn't compute. So we're, here we are in the year of our Lord, 2017. And Christ is be, still continuing to build His church. We are not in the foundation. The apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. We're in the superstructure. We're in the maybe third floor walls by this time. I don't know. Maybe we're in the roof system. Maybe it's getting close to complete. And the question that was asked at the beginning, first of the populace, secondly of the disciples, is the question that every individual must wrestle with. Who do you say that Christ, the Son of Man, is? Our whole eternity hangs in the balance. I pray that your answer is that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God.